0: Hello, this is Scott Gents. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. to this Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Lynn Lawrence. Lynn has had an incredible career, both as a national volunteer leader in optometry, as well as an ophthalmic technician who served over 30 years in the U.S. Air Force. Lynn Lawrence, welcome to Sandbox Stories.
1: Dr. Jens, thank you, and I am welcome. I'm very excited to be here.
0: You know, before we got started, I mentioned to you that I really find the impact you've had in the profession to be substantial, and I'm grateful for your willingness to let us tell these parts of your stories. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you, sir. I'm excited to tell the story, but uh, like I said, I'm honored to work in the field.
0: Hey, let's start with your formative parts of your life and your childhood growing up in St. Louis. Your family, what was it like growing up there?
1: Uh, It was kind of crazy, and and my parents both were very family-oriented and so uh, I had uh, three brothers and two sisters, and, um, and so it was real, a big family, and actually at one point, we moved from St. Louis to California, and then back to St. Louis, and it was fun. I mean, uh, my dad was um, a very present dad, and so uh, he was very stern. I mean, he would give you a look like, he didn't have to say words. He, you, you knew what he was saying with the look in his eyes. And uh, my mom was always there. Uh, Both my grandmother and my mother both helped run the youth center in our neighborhood. So um, it was very, uh, they were always there. I always had a parent around. So uh, it was good. It was good. Brothers and sisters, good.
0: Did they work in that youth center together? Were they working in the same one?
1: No, no. My well, first my grandmother ran the youth center, and then she got promoted. She worked for the St. Louis uh, County uh, Parks and Recreation, and then when she got promoted, no one took the position, so she asked my mother to to do the position. So my mother actually did it for the next few years, and so um while I was in uh, middle school and high school, my mother actually ran the uh, softball teams for the uh, kids in our na- in our neighborhood. So. I even helped.
0: So it's interesting to me, just on that topic, that people that get involved in childcare and community service like that are generally the, the kind of people that you love to have in your family, right? Because they carry this sort of parental feeling across the entire community, don't
1: they? Yeah. My 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 entire family loves babies and children and a lot of children in my family. I grew up around a lot of my cousins and so Uh, And we all had large families. So uh, my dad had 26 brothers and sisters. My mother had nine. So, yeah, it was a big deal.
0: (laughs) Wait a minute. 26 siblings? Yes, yes. And that's a lot
1: longer story than we have time to tell. (laughs) All
0: right. Congrats. That's a great family story. Your family is steeped in military service, right? It all started with your dad and it's moved on to your siblings. Tell us about what they did before you got there.
1: Well, my dad was a Navy man. He uh, he did, uh, I think, two and a half years of the Navy while the Korean War was going on. And the one thing that was always, when I grew up, we always saw his Navy picture on the wall, and he looked good in his uniform. I mean, it was like, wow, he looked good in his uniform. And so uh, my sister went, she's the oldest, and so when she finished school, she went to college and then she went into the Navy. And so that's like, man, live in the family tradition. Well, I, I mean, she did 20 years and retired from the Navy. I did not go into the Navy because by the time I graduated high school, I almost drowned twice. There was no reason for me to even consider the Navy. And so, <laughs> and St. Louis was a tough area. And so I didn't think that I wanted to go get shot at in the Army or the Marine Corps. I thought working on airplanes would be fun. So I joined the Air Force. <laughs> and so I thought I would only do four years, get out, get me a job. But I actually liked it. And so I did not. My first uh, 10 years, I was actually uh, avionics on fighter airplanes. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, air air kills was what I was responsible for recording, so it was very exciting with new weapons and fighter airplanes. It's like living a dream.
0: Hey, so, 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 how did your dad and sister handle you going to the air force? Was it hey, pick a branch, we're fine with that, or was there any uh, was there any trouble given to you?
1: Well, my dad wasn't very happy because he thought I'd go to college before I go into the military, and I didn't like school. I really and truly, I'm going to tell you how smart I was. I I I finished high school, and I did. I had a, a a 3.8 out of a 4.0, so I wasn't a dummy. But I didn't like school, so I joined the military, and he put me into school for the next 30 years. <laughs> so I didn't know what I was getting into. But um, let's just say this. There was always a purpose behind the school and the military. So whether it's leadership school or a technical school, um, they wanted to train me, and I wanted to learn, and I wanted to be good at whatever I did. So
0: I never turned down any training. I was very welcoming to the training. God bless all of you for your service. You know, we're also grateful for that. And and I want to talk a little bit more. Avionics is sort of the, the control systems, uh, the technology in the cockpit for pilots. You were deployed in Desert, Desert Shield and Desert Storm with an F-15 unit. Were you in danger's way in those situations? Uh, tell me about the people you supported who were, because of course those flying the planes were, and a little bit about what your day-to-day was like working in these airplanes.
1: Well, I can tell you uh, F-15 Eagle is an amazing airplane. It's still flying well today. Uh, Most of the ones I worked on are on a static display somewhere. But but I worked with a fighter unit out of Eglin Air Force Base. And uh, basically, we flew top cover. We were air-to-air. So um, some airplanes fight air-to-ground. Some are multi-role airplanes that fight air-to-ground, air-to-air. F-15s are basically an air-to-air aircraft. And so they go against other aircraft. And one of the fascinating things about F-15, it can turn um, 90 degrees. It rolls over on its side It makes a bank at 90 degrees. And it's absolutely amazing. And I'll tell you uh, one quick story from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, that was really fascinating. Um, so I was enlisted and we have our officers to fly to airplanes, enlisted work on the airplanes, officers fly, fly to airplanes. So our, um, one night they were they, we were flying a mission over Baghdad, and one of the pilots, uh, he was heard talking to his wife the night before, saying, "Sweetie, I got a bad feeling about this mission that's coming up." And he said, "You just make sure you pray for me." And so, um, and, and so, this story didn't come out until the next day when he actually flew the mission. And they were flying a night mission, and uh, a surface-to-air missile locked on his aircraft. And at nighttime, it's hard to see him. And so in the daytime, you can kind of avoid them, but at nighttime, it's hard to see them. So his wingman saw that surface-to-air missile coming at him, and he said, bank right, bank right. So he turns the aircraft over, and he banks right really hard, and he sees the Scud missile go right past, his, the surface-to-air missile go right past his cockpit. But um, one of the reasons I, I, I like this story so much is because it, tell, it talks about how well-trained our Air crews are, um, and our military in general. Now, this did shake the pilot up, but he was able to fly that airplane all the way home. He parked that airplane in its correct spot, and then he froze. He was unable to exit the aircraft without the assistance of a flight surgeon. And I just, you know, you know, the stories about uh, the need for training. Um, I was taught in the military that your training will kick in before your emotions kick in. And that was a firsthand experience for me to actually witness what they were teaching me the whole time. And, and, you know, other things, um, we were under attack from a scud missile, uh, scud missiles were flying after Saddam launched and some of the base had already been hit. So we were down in the bunkers. And I'm going to tell you, I, I really, Enjoy our camaraderie in the military, but when we were down in the bunkers, there were grown men crying, and it wasn't because they were afraid. They were sad because they thought they'd never see their families again. When we come out of the bunkers, everybody went to work, and we did the job. We had more air-to-air kills than any other unit in Desert Storm when we went over there, and we got the job done. But I can tell you the emotional cost of of war war is not a fun thing Uh, It's not what you see on tv Um, the sad part is that uh, you know people get hurt people die during the war and so it it can be avoided at all costs but if you want to live free you better be willing to defend it and i think our military does it better my brother i didn't mention him i better give him a little shout out he's about ready to retire from the army after 20 years so we have a navy uh retiree we'll have an army retiree and i'll be an air force retiree. so we have a lot of
0: fun when we get together fantastic stuff so let's shift to eyes you had never had an eye exam and you become an ophthalmic technician for the air force what was the genesis
1: so after desert shield desert storm they did what we call restructuring in the military and so they were trying to balance out the um, the different professions, the way they needed them. They had too many avionics troops. So they said, you're at the point where you can be trained because some, they actually just exited out of the military. But I was fortunate. They they told me, you can either pick a new job or we'll pick one for you. And I said, well, you know, medical sounds like a good job I can do when I get out. I'd never really considered going into medical until this point. There were two positions open for an ophthalmic tech. And I said, "Eyes," ah, I said, it can't be that bad. <laughs> said, These two small little things sitting inside your head. I could probably figure it out. And so I, I applied for it and I got one of the two slots. And when I went to tech school, I can tell you, it, it just blew me out of the water. I was like, oh, my, what did I get myself into? And needless to say, I just fell in love with it. I wanted to be good at it. So every opportunity that the military afforded me to train on, I, I took it. And so I learned a ton about uh, special forces. I learned a night vision goggles. Um, we had a top eye program. We had a lot of different programs that um, I wanted to be a part of. And as I um, got promoted up throughout the, the ranks, I wound up being the uh, chief that was over all the atomic um, technicians in the Air Force, and we established what we call a trauma course uh, for eyes in San Antonio. And it was um, to get people ready for uh, the deployment into a combat zone. You know, we don't do combat. Then all of a sudden you're in a combat zone. And what do I do? I mean, what am I supposed to do? And so it was to get folks ready to handle the rigors of being over in a combat zone, and I, I met some amazing technicians in the Air Force, and they did some amazing things. So I, I do it all over again if given the opportunity.
0: And and I think you told me there was something like a, almost a hundred locations for eye care delivery that you ended up overseeing.
1: We had um, I had five hundred and forty-five technicians at ninety different locations around the world. But we were also responsible for overseeing the quality control on 138 optical stores around the world as well. Wow. So, yeah,
0: that's
1: a fun lot. It was <laughs> yeah, my last two years in the military, I slept in my bed about eight days a month. <laughs> but it was fun. I'd do it again. I really would. It was a lot of fun. The impact was amazing. And especially overseas when um, I, I had the privilege of going on two humanitarian missions with the military to places that didn't have access to eye care, Um, El Salvador and Honduras. And it was life-changing for me personally. I saw a kid that had never saw his mother's face. He's a minus 16. We didn't have a minus 16. We had a minus six and a minus seven, and I had some two-sided tape. But when we put those glasses on that kid, he was able to see his mom's face for the first time. It was so life-changing. And then I called back to the United States and I asked our local optical, it was Sunlit Optical at the time, on base. They actually rushed, ordered him. They made a three pair of glasses and FedExed it down to El Salvador for me. And that's one of the reasons I love living in this country. It's just the people that reach
0: out, it's just absolutely amazing. There's much more good being done than not. Yes, absolutely. You, you st- you started volunteering for the American Optometric Association in 1996, and you got involved with the Commission on Paraoptometric Certification, which I sent many of my staff members through, and I was always grateful for those of you that started that. What was all that volunteering time like, and what did it teach you?
1: Well, I, I started volunteering. I wanted to get involved because I want I, um, in the military... Uh, they advocate strongly for certification. Everything that you can get training on, they advocate. They'll pay for it. They want you to move forward in your profession. They want you to be the best. And so I um immediately I went to get certified. And I just felt that it was something lacking in my effort to get certified and the actual test, but the test was tough. And it was like, where was all of the prep information here? <laughs> And so um, I wanted not just for myself, but for my fellow airmen and for the rest of the profession. I wanted to help build the education block for um, getting to taking that product in the military. We had a progressive step for everything we did, but on the on the on the civilian side, I didn't see those steps, and I wanted to help be a part of creating those steps. And so um, I started volunteering. One of my most amazing friends and mentors, Billy Taylor, she, God sent that woman to me and she took me up under her wing and she started teaching me some things. And and, uh, Dr. Al Levan, he took me up under his wing. And and I'm gonna tell you, I I am who I am today because of their mentorship and their leadership. And so, taking those steps with the first I was on the education committee for the paraoptometric section, And then I was a part of actually developing the commission on Paraoptometric certification. And so it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's very necessary. It's the doctors are expanding their scope of practice. And so if you don't train your staff to keep up, you're going to be dragging them behind you. So it was a no brainer to me to be a part of this.
0: You know, and getting education as a optometric to achieve a certification, and even just the process of going to take the test, pass or fail, is 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 building that person up to be more committed to the care of patients. I know the doctor. We often talk about this in leadership when you and I chat that the doctor is sort of the center stage lead actor, but you cannot put on the play without everybody else. And so that's what that's why all these things you've done are so important. and And you talk about it being fun, but you got this idea. You felt like you got mentored and then you turn around and mentored others. Didn't you?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, if I find someone that wants to be certified, I take them up under my wing. I probably um, have about five, 500, 550 people that I've actually provided materials for and helped them walk through this process. I lecture around the country for that exact reason as well. Um, Fortunately, we do have an organization, uh, through the, para, um, the, um, commission for para certification, we have them to actually get certified, but there is no mandatory requirement for certification. So when you see those n- uh, letters behind their name, the one thing that you can, you can assume safely assume is they are at least motivated to learn. <laughs> <laughs> because no one can make them um, take that test or prepare for that test. Now, some offices do something that I, I strongly advocate for is they give them uh, a, amount of, a certain amount of time. And if you're going to work here, you're going to be certified by this date. And I do think that's important because why would you keep someone on your staff that is not motivated to learn, to, to advance themselves? And so as a consultant, I I advocate, again, strongly for uh, mandatory certification in the office that's trying to move forward. So, And there's some amazing doctors out there. I've met some amazing clinicians that want a very well-trained staff. I work with a couple of them right now that are absolutely amazing, do anything. Uh, One guy, I, I shouldn't mention his name, but... Um, he is in Alabama and he spent close to a quarter million dollars, uh, one year, uh, training his staff. He holds nothing back in and, and getting his staff to move forward with him. And it's in an area that is not necessarily, no one else is doing this for the people in that area. And he's just like one of my heroes because he's doing not just a good thing for the community, but for his uh, clinic and for the individuals working there.
0: And at a time where we're all feeling the pressure of less staff, less tenured staff turnover, right? That's being seen in airlines. It's being seen at grocery stores, restaurants, and optometry clinics. And I think you make a very good point that there's an investment to be made in people. And sometimes they'll they'll drag their feet. But if you express a vision, they will follow that vision and they'll get committed to learning. And if they aren't, to your point, then they can also use that as a vetting effect to you know, keep the people who want to keep learning and, and maybe those who don't need to do something else. That's that's well said.
1: Absolutely. There's a big difference between an employee and a profession. And I'm hoping that our industry actually learns to recognize those that are a profession. And just like any other profession, just because you have letters behind your name doesn't make, it, make you a good technician or a good employee, um, but you have to start somewhere. Right. right. You have to start yeah. something.
0: Much of what you said about the letters behind the name, I think is true for optometrists too. Not all of my colleagues have advanced to say being a fellow in the Academy of Optometry. Um, but that does demonstrate an interest in learning and putting yourself out there, putting risk in front of yourself, taking oral examinations after you've had a license given to you already. Um, I like it. Thanks for sharing that. I do want to talk a little bit about what you learned in the military in terms of mental health. You hit on it a little bit by talking about these people who did their job, but also thought about their family. And, and today we we live in a world where mental health and and achieving, you know, resources or accessing resources that are available to you are important. Um, do you think we do a good enough job to support our, our veterans and, and our populace as a whole with mental health support?
1: Some offices are better than others and but i can tell you i think where the gap is a lot of the young people don't understand and so when they get the cranky old military guys to come in here uh they don't they think they're just being mean and old and 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 they don't understand the history that made them the way they are today now, i'll give you a, a, a example i live in an area here in florida we're surrounded by probably five military bases within about a 60, 70 mile radius. So we have a lot of retirees here. And in the chart, this one said, do not walk behind the patient. He is extremely paranoid. And so what we did at the office that I was working at, we informed the tech, hey, don't walk behind them. It's not gonna be a good thing. Well, it made the tech so nervous. Guess <laughs> what happened. He walked behind the guy. Now this, this tech, happens to be six foot five, about 300 pounds, not some small guy. And he walked behind it, and oh my word, all we heard was yelling. And so I, I walked in the room and it's easy for a military man to diffuse another military man, because all we do is speak the military language. And, and then it starts to calm him down. Understand, understand, understand. And then um, we had a little discussion and we took the tech out of the room. We put another tech in the room, said he won't be back in, calmed him down. The doctor was able to finish the uh, exam. But I'm going to take the mental health issue in our country is at a crisis right now. I recently read an article about the therapist needing therapists because they are so overworked that it's starting to traumatize them. And so it's 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 real. But how we address it in our clinic is, it has to be in the forefront. If you have a a large population with uh, mental health issues, you have to train your staff on how to deal with it. It's um, uh, in 2012 OSHA came out with a mandatory requirement for um, violence in the workplace training for all healthcare professions. And so um, in the sheriff's department actually have canned presentations, they'll do it for free in the office, yet a lot of our offices are unaware of that. And so um, this this was a good opportunity to get a plug in for this. Um, All healthcare workers are at a higher risk for violence in the workplace, and this mental health issue is not making it any easier.
0: I appreciate you calling out some resources, and I will second what you said about counselors and therapists needing their own help. My daughter's about ready to graduate with her master's in that very area. And they ask the students all through their training to seek counseling on a regular basis to begin with. And I think it's just an important part of of human life today. It's not a secondary matter that just affects some people. So I appreciate you bringing the humanity of it, particularly from your military experience to the forefront. I want to shift to your consulting business. Uh, It's called See the Light, and it's a leadership-minded business. What motivates you to give doctors and staff leadership training to improve the delivery of their care? Oh,
1: I love this question. I really do. This is, this is probably one of my faves. Um, okay, so I work in a profession that I truly love, and I've met some amazing clinicians. I've met some amazing staff members, but leadership is not innate. You're not born knowing how to lead. Uh, When I was a kid, everybody followed me. There's a difference between being bossy and and leadership. (laughs) Leadership comes through training. And and, and by the way, I just want to put a plug out there. Leaders make mistakes. If you're in a leadership role and you've never made a mistake, you're just fooling yourself. (laughs) Leaders make mistakes. But the thing about leadership, if you lead by example, you're making the people around you better. And if you are just bossy and pushing people around, you're just in the category of being a bully. And so I said this to a doc one time. Uh, I said, what's the difference between being an owner and a slave owner? And his eyes almost popped out of his head. <laughs> I said, an owner understands the value of his resources. A slave owner does not. And so it's important for us to understand that there's value. Every time you hire an employee, it's going to cost your practice around $3,500. So if you have a higher rate of turnover, you're wasting money. And so leaders understand the value. And I'm going to tell you right now, in my opinion, I'm 62 years old. This has been one of the toughest seasons for leading people. I have never seen turnover as high as it is. I I mean, good people uh, are turning over. Good doctors are losing people. Um, This COVID has added a little twist in our uh, industry that I don't think anyone was prepared for. Some people handled it better than others, but being prepared for this, you know, it's easy to criticize the government. You don't have, what is it, 30 million people to be responsible for, <laughs> it really is. But um, if you had to make all of the decisions at a, at, a, at a snap rate, like the leaders in our country did, it'd be probably uh, fewer folks criticizing. Um, I like armchair quarterbacks, I like sports. And it's so,
0: man, they showing been right, they should have been right. Well,
1: <laughs> You didn't have the 390-pound guy running at you. (laughs) He did. Right. So leadership, you have to make spot decisions. You have to be able to stick by your decision. But you have to be consistent. Um, I would tell you that I think in our country, leadership has declined because of the makeup of the family. And people say, would you explain that, man? Well, back in the 50s and 60s, you had family sizes of seven to nine people. When mom and dad was out, you got your first shot at leadership. And now when you move up to the 90s, as the family size got smaller, you move up to the 80s and 90s, we have latchkey kids that don't necessarily know how to play well with others. And and it's not no one's fault. There's no one to blame. But in our environment, you when you have five or six other kids to live with, Somebody had to be in charge. or <laughs> It was just going to be chaos. And um, I see this. My wife and I, uh, we do a lot with children at our church. And we have for the last 30 years. And we've seen the shift. We've seen the shift. And so um, um, the owners of the uh, optometry clinics, are they have challenges that they've never had to experience before. And it, it, could, it can wear a good dock out. Uh, with employee issues. So the reason I got into uh, the See the Light leadership, because I want to help the leadership. Uh, it's not as easy as people, hey, and you know how we normally uh, get an office manager, the last one retired or died And so you've been here the longest, you're up. <laughs> right? So, and because I was the best tech on the planet, doesn't mean I'll be the, a good office manager. Or I'm the best friend, desk worker, doesn't mean I'll be a good office manager. It takes leadership. And unfortunately, in our industry, we don't have a leadership track. Ophthalmology actually has a leadership track. Dental has a leadership track. But in optometry, we do not have an office manager leadership track. And not for the entire industry. And so I want to be a part of making that happen.
0: I'm just going to say it to my colleagues, optometrists, and all of you in practices, leadership training is not an option. And I hope you'll take some. Let's finish with this, Lynn. Um, I know you have great passion about your faith, but tell me about what gives you the most joy in your personal life.
1: Well, okay. First, we'll start off by saying, you know, optometrist is the first profession mentioned in the Bible. I like to let people think on that one for a moment. All right. God said, let there be light, and then the need for optometrists came about. (laughs) And so um, my faith is wrapped up in the fact that I I believe we're all put here to help one another. And I think uh, what we do is more of a miracle than a profession. If you've ever seen someone that couldn't see put on a pair of glasses for the first time, you get to see a miracle in the work. And I just think it's so special in what we do. I mean, there's airline pilots out there that want they're responsible for a plane full of people. And they land on the runway because they can see the runway because some optometrists gave a nice pair of glasses. So what we do, I just don't take for granted. Um, learning in a classroom. Kids don't learn in a classroom they can't see. Matter of fact, some kids get put in special ed classes for being disruptive because no one's ever given them an exam. And so I think that what we do is a gift. And and I just take it as um, we need to do this really, really well. It ties into everything else that's gonna happen in our society. Everybody needs to see. The better they see, the better opportunities they'll have to do what they do better. And so um I'm motivated because I believe God picked me for this. I didn't know anything about eyes. There were two positions um in the military. And I applied for a one and I got it. and I do believe that this was my calling because um I didn't know what I was getting into, and I just fell in love with it. I believe that eyes don't lie, they tell you a really good story, and if you just know what you're doing when you work with them, you'll get the right you'll get the right answer 99.9 percent.
0: So I appreciate that that's what gives you joy. Let's finish with this. What's your best advice for all of us?
1: Well, I believe you have one of the most important, you work in one of the most important professions in the world, uh, whether it's scientists can't see what they're doing without good vision. Um, leaders can't lead without good vision. I mean, uh, police officers can't police without good vision. I mean, everything um, can be tied to what we do. We're like this, bespoke in a wheel, but Unless we see it as important, unless we take it serious, no one else will. We take it for granted. We have made an eye exam look so easy, people argue about buying a pair of glasses. (laughs) So we need to do a better job telling the story about what we do. And and if you have a passion in this, let everybody know about your passion. There's more to this than meets the eye, no pun intended. (laughs)
0: Lynn Lawrence, I'm so grateful for having gotten the chance to get to know you better through this episode, and I am really grateful that you are my guest on Sandbox Stories. Thanks for all of this.
1: Dr. Um, Jens, this has been an honor, and I just want you to know it's a privilege for me to um, actually be able to speak to you. I have a great deal of respect for you. Thank you for what you're doing.
0: Well, it's the feelings mutual. And to my audience, thanks for attending. I know you appreciated Lynn Lawrence's stories, and I hope you look him up. Until my next Sandbox Story be great at all you do.